Hi, this is Keith, and welcome to Slack Debate. This is a little special episode that I'm just putting out myself, where uh, I was at Joel's house uh, babysitting, and his kids are asleep, so I'm flipping through his magazines, and I found this issue of Wired that has an article about dumpster diving at big box stores. And I mean, like, dumpster diving, you think, like, looking through trash. But these dumpsters, like, there's nothing in them except cardboard and bubble wrap and insanely expensive electronics that are just being thrown away. It's crazy. So uh, I thought it was a really interesting article. And I was like, you know, this would make an interesting podcast just to read this article. But where would that fit? And I was like, you know what? That kind of fits with Slacktivate. Let's make it into a Slacktivate special report, special episode. I've always been really interested in this type of stuff because uh, my mom grew up with just a ton of brothers and sisters, like 10, 11, I can never even remember with uh, just a dad who just worked uh, for customs, like they just had no money. So even though my family is pretty well off, my mom raised me that same way. Like I, I didn't realize we had money when I was a kid. All kinds of weird stuff like on pizza day, it was like $2 to get a piece of pizza. Everyone got pizza except me. <laughs> and in junior high, the class went to New York. It was basically, our class was split into for English class, there was the smart half and the dumb half, basically. And the whole smart half went to New York except me, because, you know, we didn't have money. I didn't know what a pair of jeans cost till high school. When somebody told me they spent $80 on jeans, I thought they were just joking, because all of our clothes were hand-me-downs from all of my plethora of cousins. Yeah, it was a while before I realized, like, wait a minute, what was all that shit? <laughs> like, we're not poor. I certainly made up for it in uh, all the money I've soaked out of my parents as an adult. But, uh, but I mean, it's kind of neat in a way to have grown up that way. I remember even, man, we had this uh, teddy bear when I was a kid that was from like a dump, like somebody had abandoned it. And my mom washed it and sewed it all back together and put patches on it. And that's the only bear I remember, you know? That was like the special bear. The rest were just like, whatever, some stuffed bullshit. But there's one that we found just like outside was always the one everyone remembered and cared about. It's probably still at my mom's house. So I really grew up with that kind of idea. And I still live that way. I just use stuff till it doesn't work. Like if I had this little uh, Motorola droid, the kind that you has a little flip out keyboard and I was using it to write with. And man, you should have seen that thing by the time. I mean, I used it almost every day. I wrote tons of stuff on this thing. I'd go to like coffee shops and, you know, it's a little slow to type away with your thumbs, but it's a nice way to not be distracted by having a full computer. And man, like you couldn't read the fucking letters on it anymore. And it was just a, it was insane how garbagey it looked. It made the fucking Millennium Falcon or the ship from Firefly look pristine. Or uh, my last computer was a little netbook that was held together with big elastic bands and the keyboard didn't work. So I had a, a Bluetooth keyboard. And I don't even think twice about that until I pulled it out at uh, somebody's house. And they were like, what is that fucking, what is that Frankenstein's monster? And I was like, oh, it's, it's my computer. Like, to me, you just use shit till you can't use it anymore. So I kind of like, in a way, that I got that in my head from my mom. I don't know, it's, it's nice. I mean, I can live on a lot less money than most people. And I've, you know, moved all around. I went to New York and Toronto and all these places. And I, I live on a pittance because you can. You can pull it off if you have that mindset. But nobody likes to hear it. Man, nobody likes to hear it. It is contentious. Don't talk about 
politics and religion? Well, don't talk about money either, because people like, get pissed. They're like, how dare you say claim that I'm wasting money? But everyone is. I mean, I do too, but it's just money is falling out of everyone's pockets in North America. We're just, we're mental about it. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. It's just, it's, uh, we really don't realize, or I guess it's just like, maybe it's like we know, we know we could live with less, but we don't want to. It just seems like painful like oh no really oh you're gonna make me not have all this shit that i want all the time terrible <laughs> and like i guess it can go too far i'm sure there's a lot of ways i've probably kind of stunted myself with uh, a real desire to not waste money like maybe it gets a little weird at a point i remember the cartoonist joe matt talked about how he would uh steal toilet paper from public washrooms and i'm like dude joe it's toilet paper, motherfucker. <laughs> like, come on, you know? There's a point where it's too much. But I've always been interested in that idea. And then uh, there's this magazine called Found Magazine that's all about just, like, letters that uh, people find on the street is mostly what it is, like, weird little notes and stuff. And this magazine is, like, this cool thing of seeing these little notes that you should get this little glimpse into uh, people's lives and the little dramas going on with them. And the first issue of that I read in Vancouver in like 2005 had an interview with a guy who was a dumpster diver. And again, it's not dumpster dumpsters. It's just uh, this guy in particular, it was a lot of college stuff of just college kids throwing shit away. That comes up in this article as well. And I remember one thing that was a little sad about it as a, you know, I hope to be a writer someday to publish some shit. And he was saying how fiction books are worthless. They're not even worth picking up. It's only nonfiction. But the money he made through textbooks alone, people would just dump their textbooks. And then next semester, everyone needs those textbooks so you can sell them and make tons of money. And yeah, people would just entire stereos, just all kinds of stuff. Uh, I also heard a story somewhere about Japan, that in Japan, it's way socially taboo to have old stuff or used stuff. So people, again, like Japan, ridiculously clean, and they just put out, like, here's a whole living room set. Here's a TV, here's uh, speakers, here's chairs and tables, here's everything. Just put out on the side of the road to be disposed of because nobody wants to have it. They don't want to keep their old stuff and nobody wants to have used stuff. So North Americans that are Living in Japan, they can just furnish, you can furnish your whole apartment with stuff that just other people don't want, that is in pristine, perfect, super awesome shape, you know? But yeah, we're just in this, this fucking weird society of consumption and uh, throwing things away and uh, super garbage town. And I just think it's interesting. So that's what this episode is going to be, is me reading an article about such things from Wired Magazine. I hope you enjoy. If that sounds terrible, uh, you know, <laughs> go listen to something else then, I guess. This is your warning. We're reading a magazine article. That's what's happening. So, let's go. From the February 2015 issue of Wired, one Man's Trash 
Matt Malone makes thousands of dollars from diving into the dumpsters of America's biggest retail chains by Randall Sullivan. Matt Malone doesn't mind being called a professional dumpster diver. He tells me this a little after 2 a.m. on the morning of July 7th as we cruise the trash receptacles behind the stores of a shopping center just off the capital of Texas Highway in Austin. Given the image that conjures, though, it's worth pointing out that Malone has a pretty good day job, earning a six-figure salary as a security specialist for Slate Consulting. He's also founder of Acero Security, a startup that he says has recently been offered seed money by not one but two separate investors. Nevertheless, the 37-year-old Malone does spend a good many of his off hours digging through the trash. And the fact is, he earns a sizable amount of money from this activity, more per hour than he makes at his slate job. Malone stops his Chevy Avalanche next to the dumpster in back of an office depot. Within seconds, he's out of the truck and sticking his magnetized flashlight to the inside of the dumpster's wall. He heaves himself up onto the metal rim to lean inside and begins digging through a top layer of cardboard and packing materials. Half a minute later, I hear what I'll learn is Malone's version of Eureka. Hell yes. Hell yes. He comes out with a box containing a complete Uniden wireless video surveillance system, two cameras and a wireless monitor, which normally retails for $419. A quick inspection reveals that it's all in perfect condition, although someone has clearly opened and repacked it. A return, he says, then plunges back into the dumpster. Ten minutes later, when he's again behind the wheel of the avalanche, Malone continues to tell me about the material benefits of dumpster diving. If he were to dedicate himself to the activity as a full-time job, he says, finding various discarded treasures, refurbishing and selling them off, he's confident he could pull in at least $250,000 a year. There is that much stuff simply tossed into dumpsters in the Austin area. He lists a few recent recoveries, vacuums, power tools, furniture, carpeting, industrial machines, assorted electronics. Much of it needs a little love, he says, but a lot of it, like this Uniden system, is in perfect condition. But, he quickly adds, his foraging isn't just about dollars. It's also about the knowledge he acquires and the people he shares it with. He prefers to be known as a for-profit archaeologist. After all, archaeologists have always studied garbage. The esteemed William Rathie, who established the Garbage Project at the University of Arizona, observed shortly before his 2012 death that refuse, more than anything else human beings produce, gives us insight into the long-term values of a civilization. As for Malone, the main insight he's obtained from digging through our civilization's trash is that most people don't place a lot of value in value anymore. Malone started dumpster diving nine years ago when he was working at a lower-level corporate security job. His employer had assigned him to conduct what's called a zero-knowledge attack on an Austin-based company. That means you hire me and don't give me any information about your operation, Malone explains. I'm just a random guy who wants to break into your system. The most effective way to do this was to dig through his client's trash. Many hacks and identity thefts come from information left in dumpsters. Sure enough, after just a couple of weeks of looking through the dumpsters outside the client's offices, he had amassed a box full of documents loaded with the confidential information of thousands of customers. It made quite an impression on his clients, he recalls.
But he also discovered something else. One night while doing his research, he decided to poke around in neighboring trash bins, including the dumpster at Office Max. Inside, he discovered a whole bunch of printers, discontinued lines that were still in the boxes. He took the printers home and put them in his garage. But he couldn't stop wondering what else was out there in the dumpsters of Austin. Before long, he went back out to see what else he could find. A short and wiry man whose manic enthusiasms and radiant smile lend him a quirky charm, Malone says that at first he looked for items he could use himself, especially in his main passion, building and riding mini-chopper motorcycles. On a hunch, he checked the dumpsters behind the Emerson Electric Warehouse in an industrial park near his home, where he found several discarded motors that would provide enough power to move a mini-chopper along at 40 to 50 miles per hour. Then, out of curiosity, he turned his attention to the dumpsters at Home Depot. Harbor Freight, Big Lots, Sears, Best Buy, and a few others. He was astounded at what he found. Building materials, power tools, HEPA filters, and a dizzying array of electronics. At first, Malone mainly used his discoveries for various hobby projects. Along with his mini-choppers, he built an electric skateboard, a set of plasma speakers, several 3D projectors, and a computer that ran while submerged in mineral oil. People would come over and ask, Man, where'd you get that, he recalls. I'd say, well, I made it. I didn't say right away that I made it mostly from stuff I got out of dumpsters. Inevitably, his friends would ask to buy his various toys, and usually already bored with them and having moved on to a new project, he would agree to sell. Even so, his garage soon overflowed, and Malone decided he should make some space by staging a weekend yard sale. That sale provided several revelations. The biggest was what sold with the drive-by public. I had all my cool stuff out front, a couple very nice computers, mini-choppers, some high-end printers, the big-ticket stuff, thinking this is what's going to make me the money. It wasn't. Instead, people flocked to the small stuff. The photo paper and toner he'd pulled out of the dumpsters at Office Max and Office Depot, the hand tools he'd found in the trash at Harbor Freight, the CDs from GameStop dumpsters, the assorted seasonal tchotchkes that had been tossed by the employees at Pier 1 and Cost Plus. I eventually figured out that I had to sell the big stuff on Amazon or Craigslist, Malone says. But all those small sales added up. By Sunday afternoon, he'd collected a little more than $3,000 in cash. And that was when I realized this has the potential to be something. At the time, Malone explains, he was working for a company called Vintage IT and making only about half of his current salary, so he appreciated the opportunity to augment his income. He began to organize his approach, making daily checks of the various malls and business parks closest to his home to ascertain what days and times dumpsters were most likely filled with desirable items. Within a few weeks, he knew exactly when the trash was collected at every store and business on his route, so he could time his visits for when the dumpsters were fullest. He also learned to look for stores that were changing locations, or better yet, going out of business. Store remodels were also good targets. I was learning as I went along and designing a kind of collection system before I even realized that's what I was doing. As we drive by a shopping center just off the Mopac Expressway, Malone remembers the weeks when the Circuit City that once anchored this mall was closing. I went back day after day after day, he says. I got brand new stereos, GPS devices, some really nice cameras, flat screen TVs. I got a boombox there that was bigger than I am. And what was great was that you could sell it at retail because it was all still in the boxes. Suddenly, Malone spots a huge yarder dumpster directly behind Beale's department store, an indication the store may be remodeling. 
Within moments, he's pulled his truck alongside the yarder and used the truck bed to climb in. Wading through the cardboard and bubble wrap, Malone quickly finds three slightly used dress-form mannequins that he's sure can be sold to an owner of one of the pop-up clothing stores that have become popular in Austin. That's just the beginning, though. During the next 15 minutes, he's so deep in the bowels of the dumpster that at moments all I can see are his shoulders and the back of his head. He exclaims, hell yes, at least a half dozen times. When Malone is finished, there are two large stacks of laminated MDF boards and plate glass panels from discarded store displays in the back of his truck. He can use the boards at a workshop that he maintains in a small business park a couple of minutes from his North Austin home. These pre-cut boards are really expensive, Malone says. That's money I won't be spending. Malone can get downright philosophical about the empire he's managed to build out of garbage. We can only do what we do here because we live in a society where most people have been conditioned to look past what's right in front of them. So how did we get that way? The search for an answer leads us at least as far back as 1945. The United States had come out of World War II as the only major power that was both richer and more powerful than it had been going in. Prosperity was becoming a kind of secular religion, and its visionary torchbearer was J. Gordon Lippincott. Today, Lippincott is remembered mainly as the father of corporate branding, the engineer-cum-marketer who created the Campbell Soup label and the Coca-Cola logo. He was also, however, the high priest of planned obsolescence. Our willingness to part with something before it is completely worn out is a phenomenon noticeable in no other society in history, he wrote. The phenomenon is soundly based on our economy of abundance. It must be further nurtured even though it is contrary to one of the oldest inbred laws of humanity, the law of thrift. By the 1950s, the U.S. had emerged as the planet's first full-fledged consumer society, and the pace of obsolescence only increased with the rise of the digital age. As Gordon E. Moore so famously predicted, the integrated circuits that drove the next generation of innovation were doubling in power every 18 months. This rapid rate of improvement meant that consumer technology quickly became outdated, unable to perform the same functions as the latest gadgets and machines. The trend, buttressed by corporate stockholders who wanted ever-increasing sales numbers and by advertising and media that constantly pushed the latest breakthrough or advancement, soon created a culture in which people don't simply want the latest device, they also see little or no value in the old ones. People got trained to throw stuff away, Malone says. So they did. By 2004, according to an extensive Columbia University and BioCycle study, the U.S. had become a country that every day produced an estimated 7.1 pounds of trash for each man, woman, and child. Edward Humes, whose 2012 book Garbology is perhaps the most comprehensive consideration of the subject, recalls his visit to Southern California's giant Puente Hills landfill before its closure. You stand atop this 500-foot plateau of trash so big that you could put Dodger Stadium on top of it with parking, and it literally boggles the mind. This is a landfill that serves just L.A. County, and the plateau has 130 million tons of trash in it, he says. Some of it's worthless, but a lot of it isn't. We're throwing away tremendous value. Malone sees himself as a kind of bridge between not only the philosophies of abundance and sustainability, but also the haves and the have-nots. Lots of people, even in the U.S., can't afford the newest device. But you can make a huge difference in their lives if you can sell them a computer that works well for $200, he says. It helps his cause that Malone is not only mechanically gifted, but loves to learn new things, 
For instance, he acquired much of what he knows about scooter repair from the mechanics at a company called Austin Motorsport, which hired him to set up its computer system. While there, Malone met a customer who kept bringing in old, non-functioning electric scooters and selling them for about $50 each. It turned out that the customer drove a garbage truck. People on his route were throwing these scooters away. Malone soon discovered that they weren't broken. It was just that their 12-volt batteries had died. Replacement batteries tended to cost almost as much as an entire scooter, so most people junked them. But Malone knew how to power the scooters for next to nothing. He'd previously recovered a hundred emergency exit lights discarded at a construction site where an office building was being renovated. Each of those lights housed a 12-volt battery, one that could be repurposed to power an electric scooter. At this point, Malone says, I figure I've sold more than a hundred recycled electric scooters and I've made an average of about $150 on each one. His profit margin on Roombas, which also often just need replacement batteries, is even higher. Malone paused while deciding whether to take a huge plastic bag filled with hundreds of brand new Srixon range balls, which he's just pulled out of a golfsmith dumpster. He's got a fondness for this particular location, he explains, owing to the huge assortment of racket covers he found here when the store decided to eliminate its line of tennis products. He can't remember who told him tennis racket covers sold for pretty close to their retail price on Amazon, but they were right. Malone says, I made a shitload of money on them. Ultimately, he decides to keep the Srixons, shoving the bag into the bed of his avalanche. Malone is not alone in his pursuits. Indeed, he's discovered an entire community of trash collectors in the Austin area. These scavenger entrepreneurs are overwhelmingly white and working class, hustlers who tend to carry a ton of personal baggage and yet are still more willing to share what they know than just about any people I've ever met, Malone says. Take his friend Coulter Luce. It was Luce who taught Malone to see beyond commercial dumpsters and look around the apartment complexes surrounding the University of Texas campus, especially at the end of the academic year. The first time I went over there, I found so many computers in the trash that I couldn't believe it, Malone recalls. Plus all this other stuff that had just been dumped by rich kids in a hurry to get home. Luce, who had gotten into dumpster diving after losing his job and descending into financial distress, went so far as to befriend several building managers who would tell him when a student was being evicted for non-payment of rent. Frequently, Luce says, kids just leave all their stuff behind. And that stuff went straight into the dumpsters where I'd be waiting. He claims to have made $65,000 that first year, even though he was using methamphetamine. I was tweaking and it messed me up, Luce admits. Malone called Luce in 2006 after stumbling upon a huge find in the parking lot of Discount Electronics, a local Austin chain. The store was clearing out its warehouse and had hauled everything to the parking lot of its main store on Anderson Lane. Malone focused on the 40 prototypes of Dell's newest high-end desktop computer, which Discount Electronics had contracted to test. He was still loading them when Luce showed up and walked right past the computers to the photo paper and toner. Coulter taught me to stop going after the big prize and get the consumables, Malone says. People aren't going to need new printers that often, but they constantly need paper and toner. As for the 40 Dell computers, Malone still considers them a missed opportunity. They were all damaged, he says. The way Discount Electronics had tested these prototypes was to put them on a super powerful heatsink for a solid month to see how much they could take. If he had waited a few months until the model had gone on the market, Malone estimates he could have fixed them up with replacement parts and made about $1,000 in profit on each machine. 
Instead, he rushed to sell the broken computers, which many mostly ended up giving them away. Luce, meanwhile, made a killing on the consumables he'd collected. Luce also pioneered a unique method for targeting storage units. When people move their stuff out of storage, he figured, they make a lot of decisions about what to call. Most leave things behind, either in or near the facility's dumpsters. People who've gone through a divorce or are coming to collect the possessions of a deceased loved one inevitably toss an amazing array of valuable items. Luce explained to Malone that he could rent the smallest storage unit in a facility, usually a locker-sized space that cost $20 a month, and have 24-7 access to a place where treasures were discarded on a daily basis. I got an entire shop's worth of power tools, all brand new, right after I rented my first storage unit, recalls Malone, who now has units in four different facilities. What's great is that you have places to stash your loot and protected dumpsters that only you can get into. Another of Malone's trash hunting friends was a man named Mike Miller, whom Malone calls my personal guru of dumpster diving. Miller, who died of heart disease a few years ago, taught Malone to collect all the pieces of disassembled or broken items, because they could almost certainly find use in different projects down the line. It's a lesson that Malone adheres to as we drive through Austin. At Discount Electronics, he collects an assortment of circuit boards, wafers, and tiny screw-down connectors that can be fitted into dozens of electronic devices. Later, in the dumpster at yet another office depot, Malone finds a brand new office chair with a claim slip indicating that some parts are missing. When he returns to his office and looks up the serial number on the internet, he discovers that the chair, which retails for $339, is only missing a pair of washers. I'll probably sell it on Amazon for half of what Office Depot charges, he says, but that's still $170 for what he estimates to be a total of 20 minutes of work. Once, while sorting through the dumpsters at this same Office Depot store, Malone came across a boxy machine that he didn't recognize. The thing was brand new, though, so he followed Miller's mantra. When in doubt, take it. When Malone looked up the serial number online, he discovered it was a Martin Yale business card slitter with a retail price of $1,850. He sold it for $1,200 through Craigslist. For Malone, Luce, and the community of scavengers they're a part of, one big threat looms, the increasingly widespread use of commercial-sized trash compactors. Big-box stores like Walmart have praised compactors for reducing the volume of trash they send to landfills, but to Malone and other dumpster divers, the machines are utterly evil creating far more waste than they eliminate. Josh Vick, another Austin-area trash hunter, says that when he started dumpster diving, he'd routinely find 10 to 20 models of kids' bicycles in the Walmart dumpster, bikes he could usually sell for roughly half of what Walmart charged, often to kids who otherwise might not have been able to afford them. Those bikes, along with a lot of other stuff that's basically brand new, are still being thrown out, Vincic says. But now they're locked inside that compactor, where they're slowly being crushed. It's the same at Best Buy, Bed Bath & Beyond, and any number of companies that have gone to trash compactors, says Malone, who has opened a number of compactors to look inside. He's found destroyed lawnmowers, bicycles, weed eaters, barbecue pits, home theater systems, portable air conditioning units, fishing poles, boom boxes, and a ton, I mean a ton, of electronics. You open one of these things up and it's literally an ocean of products inside. When Wired asked Walmart about Malone's and Vincic's claims, The company responded with a statement that didn't address the question directly, but rather touted the company's public commitment to reaching zero waste to landfills by 2025, and said that total annual waste generated from our operations in the U.S. has decreased by 3.3% compared to our 2010 baseline. 
Bed Bath & Beyond responded with a similar statement, while Best Buy declined to respond to questions about the compactors. Author Humes, who has in the past extolled Walmart's reduction of landfill-bound waste, reacted with dismay to Malone and Vincic's reports. The fact that a company that has made such a public, and I think sincere, commitment to reducing waste is still sending so many things people could use to landfills is really disturbing, he says. I think it probably says more about our society and the economy in general than it does about Walmart in particular. While researching his book, Humes obtained what was one of the last interviews with William Rathie, the late University of Arizona garbage researcher. During that conversation, the archaeologist said that U.S. overconsumption reminded him of the ancient civilizations he had studied, in which the moment that extravagance began to outstrip resources always seemed to signal the descent into contraction and decline. In Garbology, Humes urged a break with that historical pattern and an all-out commitment to cutting waste. But in his conversation with Raythi, the university researcher noted one big problem with this idea. No great civilization of the past has ever pulled this off, Humes said Raythi told him. None. Malone warned me that starting out on the Sunday of the July 4th holiday weekend would likely mean a relatively scant selection of discarded merchandise. Nevertheless, he still expected to back up his claim that he can make a quarter million dollars a year from trash. In fact, he's thought long and hard about dumpster diving full-time, only he doesn't want to give up his work as a computer security specialist. After all, he's just back from a trip that took him across a wide arc of the eastern seaboard. In New York, he says, he helped a posh fashion house defend itself from a hacker attack, which was great because I really liked those people. In Virginia, he says, he was assigned by a government agency he won't name to expose any vulnerabilities to terrorist attack that might exist in its food supply chain. I'm not going to walk away from those kinds of experiences, but at the same time, I don't want to give up the treasure hunt thrill I get from dumpster diving. At the end of our second night together, which runs well into the early morning hours, Malone assembles his take and begins preparing a spreadsheet that includes both retail costs and probable sale prices. He does it scrupulously, assigning no value to the items he intends to use in his shop or his various businesses, the lumber, the MDF boards, the plate glass, the office supplies, the USB chargers, and the various software he's collected. The big scores are six Dell R200 servers, a single Dell 2950 server, a Cisco Catalyst 5500 series switch, and a Cisco Catalyst 2960 series switch. He looks up each item to ascertain the retail price, guessing conservatively that he can sell the gear for half of that amount. The total retail value of these items comes to $10,182, meaning that Malone estimates he will earn $5,091 in sales. This adds up to more than $2,500 for each night out, which despite a good deal of downtime answering my questions is a pretty good haul. At that rate, if he were to work 240 days a year, a five-day work week with four weeks of vacation, he would earn over $600,000 annually. That startling figure leads to a thought. Maybe one way to ward off the dystopia of contraction and decline that William Rathie, Edward Humes, and so many others have foreseen in this wasteful country's future is to recognize, as Matt Malone has, that while America's streets have never been paved with gold, these days they are certainly littered with it. Bum, bum, bum. Food for thought. Thank you, Wired. So, of course, if you enjoyed that, feel free to subscribe to Wired magazine. If you'd like to hear more of this stuff, go to slackdevate.ca or my website, keithcourage.com, where there are all kinds of podcasts. I hope you found that interesting. 
and I don't know, maybe take a gander in the garbage next time, next time you're by a great big store. Because man, that, that blows my mind. Like that's Austin. That's one guy in Austin. You multiply that across North America. It's bananas, dude. It's ridiculous. All right. Thanks for listening. See you later.
but in his conversation with Rahi, with Rathi, but in his conversation with Rathi, the with Rathi, but in his conversation with Rathi, Ra- with Ra- how do you fucking say his name? <laughs>